and good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Hope. I'm Pastor Tom. It's good to have you with us as we worship God together here today. Several things going on around here you should probably know about. Uh, first of all, our website, uh, you can always go on our website, figure out what our events and happenings might be. You can also click through to our online portal, find each other, uh, invite someone over for dinner, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, there's that, and if you are visiting with us this morning, we encourage you to fill out uh, this form in your bulletin and drop it in the bucket on your way out. We will follow up with you accordingly. Um, <coughs> youth group, today at 3 o'clock, we're going to gather here, and then we're going to take gifts that have been collected for our blueprint families and drive them down to the south south of downtown to those homes and drop them off and spread a little Christmas cheer that way. Uh, blueprint, if you don't know, is a ministry here in San Antonio that our youth partner with every summer. They spend a week uh, staying at the Blueprint facilities and going out every morning uh, after breakfast and fixing up homes of people who live here in our city at one and a half times the national poverty level or less. And we serve them and fix up their homes and try to spread a little love uh, during those hot summer months. And then we try to return to those families in this time of year and spread a little bit of love uh, with some Christmas gifts that we have collected. So encourage you to um, come and be part of that because when we get back this afternoon, we will meet in the Youth Portable for our annual youth group Christmas party, uh, which uh, should be fun, and there'll be a, a stuffed sock exchange. They're not exchanging the socks they're wearing. Don't worry, it's not, it's not weird. It's just, yeah, they're, anyway. If, you, if you're in our youth group, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but that's coming up, and then this evening at six, right here, is our women's ornament exchange, and this is a, um, I don't even know how to describe this event. It's supposed to be a Christmas event, but it involves like you bring a wrapped Christmas ornament, and then if you open it and you like it, don't worry, someone will steal it from you momentarily, and then you get to go open another one or steal from someone else. And so there's this like really wild rotation of ownership uh, so you, it, it helps you if you need to like learn to let go a little bit. It's good at that, but uh, it it can become rather what's the word? Delightful. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay, uh, but that and so if you're coming to that, bring us an appetizer or a dessert to share and a wrapped Christmas ornament. Uh, with you and one for each person with you, uh, and then that will allow that thing to happen and work. And there will actually be some some uh, devotional time, some scripture shared, and some discussion and conversation over that. So encourage you to be here for that. Uh, then on Friday night, is that this Friday night? This Friday, this Friday night, we're going to meet here at six o'clock. And we are going to go Christmas caroling in the neighborhood behind us. And so the last time we did this, the, the back 
portion of this neighborhood had literally was just being finished. And so we got trailers and hay bales and we rode to the back of the neighborhood and did our Christmas caroling back there. Well, everybody's settled in now. And so we're just going to walk from here into the neighborhood and hit those first couple of streets. So we're not going to try to do the trailers again uh, for this year, but we're just going to try to walk over there and sing, do some singing. All right. Um, what do we need to know? So show up at 6. We'll have handouts with the words in large print so we can read them at night. Yes. Yes. Um, I would encourage people to bring, like, some kind of light. Bring a flashlight. flashlight. You'll be glad you had it. And we will have some little fake candles that you can hold, but they may not provide enough light for what you need. So, so have a flashlight. Yep, so we'll probably have a, uh, one vehicle that we'll kind of follow behind and we'll have hot chocolate and some treats and things to enjoy while you were out caroling. Well, maybe, maybe cool stuff is staying behind the rover. <laughs> right, we might want <laughs> ice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, dress, dress to the weather. All right, I think that's about it. So 6 o'clock Friday night, come here, we will sang. All right. What else? Okay. So just to reiterate, Christmas Eve, that's December the 24th, starting at 5.30, we will have a cookie reception in the family room in the back of the building. Um, and then at 6, we will begin our Christmas service on Christmas Eve. So we're having our Christmas service on Christmas Eve. Christmas falls on a Sunday, so you don't have to leave your family at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning and come up here, because if you go to the Christmas Eve service, you've already gone to the Christmas Day service. Make sense? We're efficient. Yes. So um, that's Christmas Eve at 5.30 for cookies, 6 o'clock for worship, right here, and it will... this. It will be our full worship service, but on Christmas Eve. Got it? Any questions, comments, snide remarks? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Very good. What else? What am I forgetting? I think that's good for now. Why don't we have all of the important people come down to the front. If you are in fifth grade or younger, we invite you down for our children's chat at this time. Good morning. How's everybody? You look good. You feel good? Okay. All right. Uh, simple question. Who was Jesus? God's son. All right. Um, so where is God? in heaven but where was Jesus on earth he was yeah he was born just like you and I were born right we had to be born into this world and then we were babies and 
Jesus was, but I thought you said Jesus was God. Son of God, which would make him God, right? So he was God, and he was a baby. So God was a baby. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. Yes, he was. That's the miracle of Christmas, that God became just like us, and he was born just like we were born. He was human. Was, did he stop being God? No. He was still, did he, did he only become like partly human? No. He was a baby, just like you. He was completely human. And at the same time, he was completely God. Can you explain that? No, neither can I, right? But that's what we know, that God, he loved us so much. Here, I'll read you, I'll read you this, all right? <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here, I'll read you this one. Jesus said, I and the Father, that means God the Father, are one. What does it mean? What does he mean by that? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Yes, sir. One, yeah, yes. Yes, like God and I are the same, right? Jesus said, God, the Father and I are one. We're the same. We're both God, okay? And don't worry, I don't fully understand it either, right? But Jesus was God, and he became, was born as a human, just became a baby just like you and me and everybody else on this planet. Um, and here's the beautiful part of that. So when Jesus offered himself on the cross for our forgiveness, because he was human, he could offer his life for other humans, right? So that we could have forgiveness. And because he was God, how big is God? Why not? Is he too small? He's bigger than the sun, which is part of our solar system. He's bigger than our solar system, which is part of a galaxy. He's bigger than our galaxy, which is part of a universe. And he's bigger than our universe. And I don't know if there's more than one universe or not. That's above my pay grade. But he's bigger than that, right? And so because, because he was human he could he could lay down his life for our forgiveness and because he was god he could do that for everyone and when he gives you and i forgiveness how long does it last because he was god it lasts forever right so he did the one thing that only god could do he became human he laid down his life so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life that's pretty awesome you agree and that's why we celebrate Christmas, because God became human so that he could make the sacrifice that would bring us forgiveness and eternal life. Can I pray with you guys before you go to Hope for Kids? Yeah. All right. Dear Lord, thank you for the gift of your son. 
that means that we can have forgiveness because he was fully human and that we can have eternal life because he was fully God. Thank you for loving us enough to do that, to bring us the gift of your son. Fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit this Christmas season. Help us to show your love to all the people around us. We pray your blessing over these precious children as they study more of your word and hope for kids today. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them to a deeper understanding of how much you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time in Hope for Kids. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we lift up this time that we have with you today. We pray that you would be present by your Holy Spirit as we open your word, open our hearts, speak to us, grow us more and more into the men and women of God that you have created us to become. We lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We give you our sins and disappointments, and we thank you for the forgiveness and grace that are ours in Jesus Christ. We lift before you those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift to you those whom we know and love who are sick or facing uncertain diagnoses or recovering from medical procedures, and we pray your healing mercies upon your people. We lift before you our nation and its leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed, and we pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform who serve to protect and defend the freedoms we enjoy as Americans, and we pray your blessing over them, and we ask that especially for those who are in harm's way, that you would bring them home safely. We lift up those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of the sacrifices they've made, and we pray your healing over them, mind, body, and soul. And Lord, use us, your church, to minister that grace, that light, that hope, and healing to their hearts and souls. And Lord, we lift up your church here at Hope and around the world, and we pray your blessing over your people as they open your word today. May it go out through their mouths and not return to you empty. And Lord, we lift up those churches to whom we are connected through our denomination and our missions giving, and we just pray your blessing over those works of your spirit in Guatemala, in Laredo, Texas, in Kamahuani, Cuba, in Havana, Cuba, in Beirut, Lebanon, and elsewhere in the Middle East, and we just pray your blessing over all you're doing in those places. We lift up the church plants that are going on in Texas uh, through our denomination in Katy, in New Braunfels, in Austin, and in Dallas. And we just pray your hand upon those young works. Um, we pray especially for our church plant in Katy as they are winding things up and shutting their doors and just the pastor and his family are wondering what's next. We just pray your blessing over that work and what you have done there. Um, just reassure them that this was part of your will and that you have a future for them as well. And we just pray your blessing over this time we have in your word now. 
In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Yeah, I got a, a phone call from our, or an email actually from our church planter and Katie this week, and they've made the decision to kind of wrap it up and shut their doors at the end of this year. Um, and I know that's a, that's a heavy decision to come to, so just be praying for them. His name is Nathan, um, and uh, just be praying for them and for what's next for he and his family. Um, so <clears throat> we are in a series of messages during this Advent season leading up to Christmas where we are looking at the names of Jesus and because, you know, Christmas is about his birth, we thought baby names would be a fun way to approach this. Uh, and I don't know if you were looking through your baby name book at any point, but you probably did not see Son of Man or Son of God in there. Um, those are titles that would have been reserved for, uh, well, this guy, Jesus, right? And we're going we're gonna to see a passage where uh, the angel, probably Gabriel, if I recall correctly, appears to Mary and tells her, hey, good news, uh, you're going to have a baby, and he's going to be called Jesus. And she says, great, uh, how's that going to happen? Because I'm not married, and I'm pretty sure that's part of the biology of the whole thing. And the angel explains to her that, that the Spirit of God will come upon her and she will conceive miraculously and give birth. And we'll pick it up there. Um, but you'll see this, this uh, phrase, Son of God, in this passage in Luke, as Luke records it, in Mary's conversation with the angel uh, announcing that she will become pregnant. And so this is after... Uh, he has explained to her, and she has responded with, How is this possible? And the angel answered her, Luke 135, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so you have this, um, like, really powerful statement to this probably 15 or so year old young woman, um, this is what's going to happen, and this is who you're going to give birth to. And there's no way that she could have really fully comprehended um, the importance of what was happening, but she had read her Bible, she knew the Old Testament, and she knew that at several points throughout the history of redemption, God had appeared to various women and brought about miraculous births. Uh, th to lead up to this one. And so she's now part of a very um, small community of miracle moms in the Bible, and she's aware of that, and that this child is special, it's unique, and that it will be called the Son of God. And if there's anyone on the planet who could never have doubted the divine origin of Jesus, it's Mary. She knew it from the very beginning. She knew what was going on, what was happening. It was explained to her, and it was very, very real to her in her own time and in her own way. And so I want to take up this week in, in our discussion um, the two aspects of Jesus as a son, the son of God and the son of man. 
And so we're going to start with our exploration of the name Son of God, and we're going to try to understand what that means and really what that means for us individually and corporately. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? And we're going to start, well, we started already, but Luke one thirty-five, and then we're going to go to John 3.16, which you probably already know. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you can see in, in both of these gospel authors now, Luke and John, uh, that they are aware of the nature of Christ being the Son of God, like this is part of who he is. And Jesus says at one point in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, I want you to hear these words and we're going to talk about what they mean, but my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, I think the first thing to sort of stop and and recognize in the title Son of God is that the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is fully God. Fully and completely God. God. I and the Father are one. These are very clear words. This is a claim by Jesus, as recorded in John, of divinity, of full divinity. He's not partially God. He's not a a God made by God. He's actually God. I and the Father are one. He also says elsewhere in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am. Also a very clear, strong statement of divinity. Um, But let's just suffice to say, the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is fully God. This is really important, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, The author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament goes to a, a great length to try and explain why this is so important. And he goes into... Uh, this whole articulation of all the Old Testament figures that you know, like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and others, and goes on to say Jesus is greater than all of these. He is God. And so then he compares Jesus in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews as a priest with all the the only human priests that have gone before him. So he's taking this collection of of humans descended from Aaron and Moses' father, uh, or their tribe, and he is rolling out into uh, the whole Old Testament this comparison between that priesthood, which was served by humans, and the priesthood of Jesus, and he's making this comparison. And then he says in, in verse 23 and uh, through 25, 
the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, in other words, the author of Hebrews is, is saying Jesus is, is God. He's the eternal, always existent God. Therefore, the priesthood that he administers lasts forever. It has no boundaries. Other priests are all bounded by their own death, their humanity. The priesthood of Jesus is boundless. It's part of his divinity and his divine nature that makes this possible. So, this is really important, that because Jesus is fully God, he's not just partly God or a God made by God, he's fully God, because of that, then uh, his sacrifice is infinitely sufficient. So, how do I explain this? Um, the idea that, the, that my sin can be atoned for by the blood of another, right? Is a, that's, a, that's a biblical idea. And the Old Testament had the priesthood, and they would sacrifice animals. And the idea was that we were engaging in this exercise that, I, I have sinned against God, and there's going to be a sacrifice that's going to atone for my sin, and it's the blood of another that brings me forgiveness. And of course, the Bible teaches that the blood of animals cannot atone for sin, for human sin. That means it would have to be the blood of a human who would atone for our sin. But if it was just one human, just a, a human like you or me, um, then that human could only atone for one other human, and that human would have to be sinless to do that, and when then we would have this problem of only one person could be forgiven. If, however, that human is fully God who's making that sacrifice, and his sacrifice is eternally sufficient, then it can be rolled out not just to other people, but to all of my sin past, present, and future. So we stand as Christians in this place of eternal grace where the sacrifice that was made for our forgiveness is eternally sufficient. We cannot outrun the grace of God. We cannot outsin his ability to forgive. And this may sound like a dangerous thing to teach, right? Like, go sin as much as you want. You can't, you can't out-sin God's grace. That's actually a true statement. Is that what God wants you to do with his grace? Is go out and be the biggest idiot you can? No, right? He, he wants that state of humility and grace to redefine how you live, to make you want to do what's right, to give you the grace to know that you're loved and that you are motivated as God was motivated out of love to serve the world. For God so 
loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And so it is love that compelled God to save us, and it is love that is to compel us into our relationships with God and with others. And so we live in this dangerous truth that his sacrifice is infinitely sufficient. I'm going to take you to the, this is towards the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, and he's kind of summing things up, and this is what John says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the title, Son of God, conveys the divinity of Jesus. When we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, when we trust in him for that all-sufficient sacrifice that brings us forgiveness, we find eternal life in Christ. That's the message of the Gospel of John. John was the last gospel to be written. He was, the author was aware of the other gospels that had been compiled by that time. And so his gospel is very different in nature. It, do, it doesn't cover the same material for the most part. It, it covers deeper conversations and deeper insights into the nature and person of Christ. It's, it's different because he knows what's already out there. He's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now he's writing a different gospel with a different purpose. But he says at the very end that believing in Jesus is where we get access to eternal life. Because Jesus was fully God, his sacrifice invites us into not just a mortal life, but an immortal life. Um, all right. I want you to imagine a room where there are several dozen pastors, a Roman emperor, and Santa Claus. You with me? I'm not making this up, actually. I'm not making it up, right? There was a room in 325, uh, and this is A.D., 325 A.D., and in that room were several dozen pastors, the Roman Emperor Constantine, and Nicholas, the saint, the, the, the pastor from, I think, Turkey or something. Um, he wasn't from the North Pole, uh, you know, little deal breaker. What do you call that when you, spoiler, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, and here's, here's what was going on. In three, roughly three, 08, 309, 310, somewhere in that little window, Constantine, the, the current emperor of Rome, the previous emperor, Diocletian, he was a bad man. He killed a lot of Christians, like very cruelly. Um, if, if you look up the, the little girl in Barcelona, Spain, that was killed under Diocletian, if you want a good example of his brutality. Um, but he was a bad dude. He dies. And then there's this battle for the throne of the Roman Empire. 
and uh, someone that you know uh, of named Constantine is one of the contenders for the throne. And he has a battle coming up between himself and I think his cousin. Um, and he has this vision. We think, we think, that some of this history is hard to piece together, but we think that Con one of, so Constantine's mother was probably a Christian. We, we think, and I, I use scholarship from places like Oxford University. They, they have a relatively, uh, they don't have a dog in the fight here. Right? So if you read a Catholic source, you're going to get a very uh, predetermined outcome as to what all these things are. If you read um, other sources, they might have a dog in the fight of who Constantine was and what his motives were, etc. So go to find good scholarship, look it up, read it. We think Constantine's mother was probably a Christian, and so he was somewhat friendly to the idea of Christianity although he probably didn't have much of a relationship with his mother. The way you make a Roman emperor into a terrible human being is as soon as they're born, you take him away from his mother and you never let him uh, grow up with a mother. And then they grow up to be tyrants and they rule effectively. That's the idea. It's terrible. It's not a good plan. Um, uh, so there's your argument for motherhood right there. Like, st stay with mom. You won't be an idiot, uh, less likely anyway. Um, so, here we go. Constantine has a vision before this battle, that, and he believes that God tells him, if you will put the sign of Jesus Christ on the uniforms of your soldiers, then I will give you victory in this battle. Kind of a weird thing to think of God getting involved in a, in a war. Um, but Constantine does this, and he wins, and he consolidates the Roman Empire again under his single rule. And then he very quickly, in 312, that would have happened 308, 9, 10, and then in 312, he passes what's called the Edict of Milan, and he gives religious freedom to the entire Roman Empire. Now, a lot of people think that's when Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. That was another uh, 70 years forward 70-something years beyond that. But Constantine gave religious freedom to the empire. Well, for the first time in that window of freedom, church leaders could talk to each other. They could travel on church business and meet each other and talk and discuss. Before that, they had to keep a low profile because Diocletian was a jerk, and he would kill people for their faith, particularly Christians. So, there's this newfound ability to communicate and travel and, and understand each other, and the different parts of the region of the world, of the Roman Empire, pastors were hearing, wait a minute, I'm teaching that Jesus is fully God. They're teaching that Jesus was born as a God, but he wasn't always God. And we need to get together and figure this out. And some people were saying, well, he wasn't actually human. He just appeared to be human. He just kind of took on the human form. Um, and others were saying, no, no, he actually became human. And then there's, how could that be? He was God. What's going on? And so in 325, the church calls a meeting of all their clergy that can come. And <laughs> Constantine shows up. He shows up at this meeting. So you've got a couple, a few dozen pastors 
a Roman emperor, and, as I said, Santa Claus, all at the same meeting, right? Uh, Nicholas, of wherever he was from in Turkey, I think. Anyway, um, so here they are, and they have to figure out, okay, what, what, what does the Bible teach? Like, what do we believe? We need a uniform belief, and that's why we read today the Nicene Creed that you saw behind me. Um, that creed came out of that meeting, and I want to read to you as we move into the subject of Jesus as the Son of Man. I'm going to, well, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But this was the meeting where they had to figure out, is Jesus fully God, or was he created by God as a little substitute God, a little mini-God? Um, was he fully human, or was he created just to kind of look human? And what does all this mean? So the conclusion of the first council of Nicaea was very simple. Jesus was fully God, and Jesus was fully human. Or perhaps better said, Jesus is fully God and fully human. And so I want to look, the, the title, Son of God, covers that base. You saw a very clear, just one example of a very clear claim to divinity by Jesus. Um, the title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite name for himself. He referred to himself over 80 times in the four Gospels as the Son of Man. Uh, this is how he referred to himself. It is a loaded phrase. It comes from the Old Testament. If you ever read, read the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel calls himself and God calls Ezekiel the Son of Man throughout the book. Uh, there is a passage in the Psalms that, that evokes, invokes this, this term. And then there's Daniel chapter 7. And I believe that every time Jesus was saying of himself, calling himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man came to save the lost, right? Whatever he was saying, he was reaching back and grabbing this verse out of Daniel chapter 7. Let's read it. Uh, this is Daniel uh, in the book of Daniel having a vision from God. Here's what he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Does that seem like a charged term to you, son of man? Like this son of man is not just a regular dude, right? He's not just a regular prince or king. He comes on the clouds of heaven. Uh, this is a very loaded phrase in Old Testament imagery. Uh, the cloud represents the presence of God by day, fire by night. Um, but he comes with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, presented before the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Um, I believe when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man that he's referring to this passage in Daniel. He's grabbing it and saying, this is coming to fulfillment in me. 
And so some might say that the Son of Man title for Jesus is, is the way to nail down his humanity. It, it is, but as you can see in this passage in Daniel, it's not exclusive to just the human Christ. It's also a description of the divine Christ at the same time. So the first council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., they had to figure all this out. And I'm going to uh, read to you a quote. This is a quote of Jesus, one of the 80-plus times that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So Mark records Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. I believe Jesus is reaching back to Daniel 7, grabbing that passage and saying, It's me. He has come. I am the one. And in that statement, um, there's this question. Like, why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man so often? Why is this his preferred title in reference to himself? Well, um, I think he wanted to emphasize his full humanity to his followers uh, without diminishing his full divinity. That title allows access to both his humanity and his divinity. And I think he was very purposeful in this. And <clears throat> when you tell people that you're going to be killed and on the third day you're going to rise again from the dead, and then it happens, which of those two titles are they going to be more convinced of? Your divinity or your humanity? Well, no human has ever done that, right? It's humanly impossible to come back from the dead. Well, if, if he knows that his future is going to bear out his divinity with great clarity, I think he prefers this Son of Man title because it doesn't abandon his divinity, but it also nails down the fullness of his humanity. He wanted his followers to know, I'm one of you. I'm human. The life I offer on the cross is a human life, which will bear out in God's system of justice to bring forgiveness to human souls. And so, a human life for a human life. He chose this title because it emphasizes his full humanity, but not at the expense of his full divinity. Here's the passage that tied up the Council of Nicaea for days. <laughs> Have this from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right. True or false, when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am, is that a claim of divinity? Yes. Is that a claim of full divinity? Yes. Right? Um, when he says, I and the Father are one, is he establishing his full divinity? Yes. Okay. Now we go to Philippians 2, and <clears throat> it says in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. So this might lead you to conclude, just this verse by itself, that Jesus was only like appearing to be God, right? You follow me? But if we've already established that Jesus was fully divine and the author of Philippians uses the word form of God, then that means he's fully God. He's referring to his divinity here in Philippians. He uses the same word to refer to Christ's humanity. Read on. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So the author of Philippians, Paul, talks about his divine form and his human form. If if we already have established that he's fully divine, then we can take from the use of his divine form and his human form that he's also fully human. Does that, does, am I making sense? Okay. Um, this particular passage had Santa Claus and several other pastors and the Roman emperor all arguing for days. And in the minutes of the First Council of Nicaea, you see Constantine pacing around the room, the emperor of the Roman Empire, pacing around, who just a couple decades before this, the Roman emperor would have killed all these people, right? And here he is pacing back and forth, trying to figure out, wait, 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 what are you saying? What does that mean? What does this mean? And here's, this is what they came to. <clears throat> that because Jesus is fully God and fully human, we have a Savior. Because Jesus is fully human, we can, in Christ, be truly forgiven. It was a human life laid down for my forgiveness. Because he was divine, that life can be laid down for an infinite sufficiency. It will take care of an infinite quantity of sins and sinful souls. But because Christ is fully human, we can in Christ be truly forgiven. And we can in Christ become truly human. Our humanity is restored in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He allows us to be fully the people that God intended us to be when he created Adam and Eve before sin before the confusion, the hatred, the pain, the murder, before it all. We were created to live in harmony with God and with each other. And the sacrifice of Christ 
because he was fully human, allows us to re-enter our, the fullness of our humanity, to be truly human the way we were created to be. We're, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not going to be sinless in this life. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we come back here every Sunday and read it again. Because we need to remember that we are forgiven by an infinitely sufficient sacrifice that God himself loved you so much that he became one of us and offered his fully human life for our forgiveness to restore us to a place where we can live again and not just in this life, but live eternally. That is the gift of Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who restores us to our rightful place in right relationship with God and with each other. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we are humbled that you would come to this earth, that you would become fully human and offer your life as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And that because you are fully God, that explodes open the doors of eternity. That we, even now and here, can have a taste of what eternal life and light are like. Our hearts can be transformed, forgiveness can be found, and we can be, begin the process of growing ourselves, or you growing us, into the men and women of God that you created us to be. Lord, help us to engage with you in that journey, to reach into your word and find the strength, the direction, the courage that we need to change. Help us to forgive the way you have forgiven us. Help us to love the way you have loved us. We thank you for your fully sufficient offering of your son fully God fully human we are fully redeemed we have eternal hope because of you in your son's name we pray amen